Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. We're talking about supernatural encounters this morning. And look at Jeremiah 29, 13 from two different translations of the Bible. First of all, the King James Version. And ye shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me once a month. With all your heart. Look at it from the uh, Message Bible. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. How about that one? Do you like that? I don't want to be disappointed. How about you? You know, throughout history, many have experienced supernatural encounters in God. These encounters that absolutely transformed their lives and ignited within them a passionate desire to follow his plan for their lives. You think about Moses and the effect that seeing the burning bush had in his life. Think about it. His response to what God said to him changed the course of two nations. And then you think about Isaiah. Isaiah had a revelation of the Lord high and lifted up full of glory. You know the story and we'll see that a little bit more later, but it impacted his life forever. And then, of course, you got Paul the Apostle, who was Saul of Tarsus before the encounter. And when he had the encounter on the Damascus Road, he saw Jesus. You know the story. He did a 180. He was transformed. His life was changed forever. And he referred to that incident that took place, that supernatural encounter, throughout his entire ministry. Then you've got a woman by the name of Mary. She had an encounter that included or involved an angelic visitation. You know, from that time on, she was called blessed among women by all generations. You talk about a transformation in someone's life who was about to get married, all of a sudden that whole thing changes and a different perception comes about what her life was to be about. Then we have another person that's not a Bible character at all, but he is with us today. His name is Andrew Anzavino. And he had an encounter with Jesus in heaven and he was given an assignment to come back and tell everybody about him, about Jesus. An encounter that resulted in an appearance on the 700 Club, Cornerstone TV, and also a book. Stand up there, Drew. Show them the book. And he, for the first two that wanted to come and get him, he'd like to give one, those two books away. Would somebody like a copy of his book? He said, first come, first serve. Come on to get it. First one. 
Amen. And I do want you to know he continues to tell everybody about Jesus every day of his life. And what a testimony. But also, uh, there's yours truly. And I had an encounter with God in 40-some years ago, 43 years ago to be exact. And it involved an audible voice that said, you will be the next pastor of that church. And I say it transformed my, my life and my direction for my life because I said I would not do that before I heard that audible voice. And the point is, when God does things the way he wants to do things, he establishes things, he sets things up. I have referred to that incident, that encounter with God, many, many times over the last 43 years of ministry. I believe, like Paul, it's an anchor for the soul that gives us direction and stability because we know that we're going to be challenged along the way. But we've got to keep in the forefront of our mind, this is what God showed me, this is what God has done in my life, your life, or whoever's life. Now, we understand what's going on in Asbury, uh, you know, the college there in Asbury in Kentucky. And we understand that revival that's spreading to different colleges around, uh, the, really, the United States and around the world, I'm sure. Uh, we talked about different ones that were going on. But we're going to get to that in just a moment. Because I want to show us that this morning there are certain things we need to glean from having revivals or supernatural encounters and being, uh, let's say, in the presence of God this way. In Isaiah's situation, I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter 6, we have a revelation of four things that we should glean from an encounter like this. We see it written for us so we can understand it. This is from the New Living Translation of the Bible. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. Wow. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. The four things I want to bring out, number one, is clarity. When he had this vision of the Lord high and lifted up on his throne, he had clarity. He saw things more clearly. He understood things more clearly. His perception changed. He had a better perception when it comes to who God is and what he's like. This is something that transformed his life forever when he had that clarity brought into his life. So he saw things from God's perspective. You could say it that way. In other words, his view was overshadowed by God's view. And you know what? God sees things differently, doesn't he? And we want to see things the way God sees things. Secondly, not just clarity, there was conviction. Notice how he cried out, I'm a man of unclean lips and so on and so forth. I dwell with the people of unclean lips. He was aware of his own sin. Maybe shortcoming, inadequacies, faults, failures, or whatever. Of course, you don't have any out there. Only Isaiah did, right? And then we have cleansing. You know, God's intent is not to condemn, but to cleanse. So we see here clarity, conviction, 
cleansing and then a commission to go forth and to minister, to represent him among the people. So as we look at his life, what we see is this. Isaiah had clarity as far as who God is about his holiness, about his presence, his glory. And in this place where we experience God's presence in a profound way, it brings clarity. Remember the song way back in 1972 written by Johnny Nash? I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. All obstacles are removed. They're gone away. Gone is the dark cloud that had blinded. See, blinded. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshining day. Somebody looking at me like, what in the world song is that? Well, it was number one, 1972 in America and also in uh, South Africa and some other places around the world. It was the only, uh, this, this is song, reggae song uh, that was number one on the charts, the top 100 for a long period of time, so many weeks. But I can see clearly now is what that's talking about. You know, it takes time to see things clearly. When people start living by faith, walking by faith, you can't get it all at one time. It takes time to see things more clearly. But when God has a revival among us, when God raises up something among us, we get clarity. We get a better understanding of what his purpose is, what his will is, what he wants to do in the earth. Do you know what revival means? What's revive mean? To restore to life. Or to restore to consciousness. You know what that means? If you need a revival, you're saying, I'm dead. Something is dead that needs revived. Amen. And trust me, Christianity in America needs revived, brought to life once again on college campuses and everywhere in our educational system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It needs to be brought back to life for its intended purpose, which is to really reveal God. Number two, we see he had conviction upon his soul. He was aware of his shortcomings in the light of his presence. When he saw God and himself, rather, in the light of God's presence, wow, what a difference it made in his life. You know what? There's no room for pride or arrogance or even to think that we're somebody. God can use a mule. Right? He has used a mule to communicate his purposes, has he not? Absolutely. You know, when we say I want revived, that means I want to be brought back to life, to a place to where I let you live in me and not me. Cleansing. His intent was to cleanse him. He was cleansed from the coal off the altar. And thank God that cleansing equipped him to be sent out to commission him to do the will of God. That's what revival is all about. There can be an individual revival and there can be a corporate collective revival. Okay, look at look at the next individual. Look at Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus before all this. Look at the book of Acts and his encounter. Beginning at verse 1 in chapter 9. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, that's being a Christian, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Lord, who art thou? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will you have me to do? 
And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. So here we have Paul the Apostle, who was Saul at that time that we just read that, becomes Paul the Apostle. Number one, what do we see? Clarity. Whatever his view was of Jesus before this visitation that he had, this encounter that he had with Jesus, it changed. How did he see Jesus before? As a false messiah. As a blasphemer. As someone who was against Judaism. Someone who was a false teacher. And the list goes on and on and on. Someone that should be killed. He was wanting to kill him. He was behind putting him to death, etc., etc. But you know what? When he got that special encounter, that supernatural manifestation, he saw Jesus with clarity, didn't he? And notice how conviction immediately came on him. He said, what will you have me to do? Because you see, I know what I'm doing. I know my shortcoming, my fault, my failure. I know that what I've been doing is absolutely wrong now. So he had clarity. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You have been raised up from the dead. My eyes have seen you. What a change in his life. And the third thing, you talk about cleansing, he got born again. He got filled with the Holy Ghost and power. And commission, he was sent on a mission. He was sent out to proclaim Jesus, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Look at, in the book of Acts 9, look at verses 10 through 16. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise. Go into the street which is called Straight and Acquire in the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and hath seen in the vision a man named Ananias coming in. And putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints. Thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on that name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so we see this taking place in his life. He's born again, spirit-filled. He's set apart, set aside. He meets with Jesus for three years. We understand some of these things took place in his life. But he's got a commission now. He knows exactly what it is because what he was doing was absolutely against the will of God. What he was doing was wrong. He saw Jesus wrong, but now he has clarity. He was doing wrong, but now he has conviction. He is now cleansed, praise God, by the hand of God. And now he's commissioned to go out and look in Acts 26 because this is 26 years later. And notice he's still referring to the same supernatural encounter that he had. Look at this. He's speaking to King Agrippa. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints that I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even to strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things into which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Did you see all those in there, in those wordings? Did you see that clarity? He's sending them to open up people's eyes so they can have clarity as well. And forgiveness of sin as soul, this cleansing will come on them. And then a commission for them as well. But we see all that. And what's he referring to 26 years later? And why is he referring to it? To let them know how his change took place in his life. I don't know about you. When I first got saved, people thought I was crazy. People thought I was absolutely crazy. That I've gone off the deep end. I became a Jesus freak and all that. You know why? Because it's not normal religion. When you get born again, when you get washed in the blood, you see clearly what it's all about. There's a heaven to gain. There's a hell to shun. And Jesus is the only way. It's not about religion. It's not about man's way. It's not about religious traditions or anything like that. It's about knowing the Son of God. It's not knowing about the Son of God. It's about knowing the Son of God as the Savior of your life. That you've made Him the Lord of your life. That you said, come into my heart and change me from the inside out. And that's when you were washed in the blood of the Lamb. And guess what? You were strange. A peculiar people. People thought you went off the deep end as well. But what a deep end to go off. Wow. What about it? You know, revival. In this 2023 revival that's taking place in college campuses around uh, the world, in our nation, and mostly, from what I understand right now, is Christian uh, colleges. But you know what? I can't wait to the time it comes to all our secular colleges and institutions. And Jesus shows up. Guess what? They need clarity. Clarity. To understand who Jesus is, to know who he is. And this is not about religion. This is about a reality that you have with God, a relationship that you have with him. But first, before I look at these next statements, revival quotes. You know, this isn't the first time this has happened in Asbury. It's not the first time at all. Last time, I think, was 1970. And then way back even before that, all the way back to 1900. But anyhow... These are comments from different individuals about revivals and what they're about. And these are well-noted individuals. Now notice, this is from um, Elmer Towns, who wrote the 10 greatest revivals ever. An evangelistic, evangelistical, evangelical revival is an extraordinary work of God in Christians, when Christians repent of their sins and they become intensely aware of his presence in their midst. And they manifest a positive response to God and renewed obedience to the known will of God, resulting in both a deepening of their individual and corporate experience with God and an increased concern to win others to Christ. So it starts with what? God's presence manifested in a powerful and glorious way. And when that presence is manifested, all of a sudden you see yourself clearly in the light of who he is. And what does it first of all produce? Conviction. You see, it's not just all, all this, you know, enthusiasm, all this... Um, um, extremism. It's not all this emotionalism. It's my God showed up. Do you know what these people are seeing when they saw him there, when they stood worshiping God like that? His presence. And his presence brought conviction. And the conviction was repentance. They got on their faces and repented for their shortcomings and inadequacies and their faults and, and whatever they had to repent of. 
and then cleansing and then other things commissioned to go and tell other people what you've experienced. Listen to this one, Mordecai Ham. We want a revival to come in our, just in our way. You never saw two revivals come just alike. We must let them come in God's way. People are ashamed to admit they need a revival. Because if you say you need one, it means you're dead. You're spiritually, you know, dead, so to speak. In other words, I've not been alive in Christ. and I'm not living with a vibrant faith like I once had. I need revive. Uh, restore my consciousness. Okay, look at the next one. J.J. Packer, that was Mordecai Ham. Revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Thence springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, love with an evangelistic flow. This is uh, Michael Brown. Revival is a season of unusual divine visitation resulting in deep repentance, supernatural renewal, sweeping reformation in the church, along with radical conversion of sinners in the world, often producing moral, social, and even economic change in communities. Charles Spurgeon, the way to get revival is to begin at the master's feet. You must go there with Mary, and afterwards you may work with Martha. And this is Nicholas Zinzendorf. A renewal is not possible when a congregation perceives itself alive, but is actually dead. And finally, from Andrew Murray, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution, casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in the heart and life. Praise God. So when we talk about the manifested presence of God, this is what it's intended to do. And the results, of course, are going to be salvations, evangelistic tone to it, salvations, healings, deliverances, and all that. But the first thing is you really see God. You see God for who he is. In 2 Samuel now, I'm what I felt in my heart to really produce this side of it because it's not only collectively as a church body, but it's also individually. A revival can be even within oneself, let alone, you know, not only with the whole congregation of people. But look at this here, David's encounter. It's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. We'll just pull out a few scriptures, but look at 2 Samuel 11, verses 26 and 27 first. And this is from the New Living Translation. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Notice the word displeased there. It'll come back. God was displeased with what David did because David knew better than to do what he did. But you'll notice that David also didn't repent because he actually felt justified by what he did after Uriah died. But look at 2 Kings, or 2 Samuel rather, chapter 12, verse 1. And again, from the New Living Translation, and here we have Nathan the prophet, and he's involved in a supernatural encounter with David. David's in supernatural encounter with God is seen here. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. You ever thought and think about this, that he had to send someone else because David wasn't listening? You ever think about that? Mm -hmm. And here's the story that he tells him. 
There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing. But one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from his, the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the rich, home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. David, as king, decided to give a ruling and he laid down the ruling the consequence was he thought should be death because he was so insensitive to the need of this man. There was no mercy shown whatsoever. This wealthy man has everything. He's got flocks and herds and all that. And this guy's got one little one and you take, go and steal that one and you kill it to satisfy a need that you're, whoever it was that came to your house. Hmm. He deserves to die, he says. Really? That's, you can't find that anywhere. If you stole a lamb, you might have to pay sevenfold, but you don't deserve to die for that. But that's how angry he was. Look at the next verse. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Uh-oh. You think clarity came to David at that moment? Anybody here think clarity came to David? See, he didn't see he was that man even when the story was being told, did he? He didn't see he was that man even while it was happening when it took place. He felt justified by what he did because, you see, Uriah died. And once he's dead, then he could have Bathsheba as his wife legally. But, you see, he plotted the whole thing out. When he got her pregnant, he then brings Uriah home from the battle to see to it that she would, he would come home and, and be intimate with her so that he would be the one that would be the father of the child. Well, that didn't work because he said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. See, he even got him drunk in order for him to do that. But he said, slept outside of the, on the front porch rather than going inside the house and being with his wife. And he said, how can I do this with my wife when my brothers are out there fighting the war? That's not right for me to do that. And David was like now beside himself thinking, I can't even get this man to come and be with his wife. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to send him out to battle. And he tells all those that are, you know, involved in this, the leaders, and says, Go. And take him with you. And when you, let's say, approach the enemy, everybody withdraw except for Uriah. So that he gets killed by the sword of the Ammonites. Wow. But here's the worst part about it. He became so insensitive, insensitive to the things of God. He didn't, he didn't think he was wrong at this point. He just thought, well, he's dead now. She's free game. I can now marry her and everything's okay. David didn't know he needed revived. He didn't understand he needed revived. He was justified by what he had done. Put it back up there, David. You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised, notice that word there, despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. 
From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will, I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make it happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. You talk about a need for a revival. He needed a revival because he was getting that far away from God. Thinking that everything is okay. Sin is never okay in the sight of God. Never. And when we become callous to us or insensitive to it, the conscience becomes seared as with a hot iron. And we just go on. And that's why he said, this guy needs revived. Look at verse 13. Again. Or verse 13, David said unto Nathan, now notice clarity. You're going to see clarity, conviction. You're going to see commission all in, all in one verse coming up. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You will not die. Notice in that verse. I have sinned brings clarity now. I now know how. I've acted and how wrong it was. And the Lord said, and Nathan said, what? The Lord put away your sin. That's cleansing. He's put away your sin. And then the last part, you will not die. That's commission. You're going to live on and continue to function in the office that you're in. Because there's still something for you to do. But I'm not happy with what you've done. So we see this happening in the life of him. And look at uh, verse 14. And we're going to show three reasons why God pronounced judgment upon David. That was unconditional judgment. Which means you cannot in any way stop it from happening. Howbeit, because thou hast, by this deed, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born of thee shall surely die. Now. Judgment is pronounced. The child is going to die. And we won't even get into that. Let's just let that on the shelf right now. Because what I'm going to point out is three reasons why this judgment fell upon David. Number one, go on back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the, to the palace. And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was what? What was he? That's number one. He was very displeased with David for what he had done. Look at chapter 12 and verse 9 again. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord? You despise the commandment of the Lord. Notice how seriously God takes it. When his commandments are despised. Actually, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery. Are two that stand out here. You despise the commandment of the Lord to do this, to do evil in his sight. You killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. So he was displeased with him. Because he despised him, his commandments. And finally, 
The last one. Look at verse 14 again. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, which means to speak against him, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Three things. He displeased God. He despised his commandment. And thirdly, he gave great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme or speak against him. Now, we're not talking about just some individual who maybe just came to know God. This is a man who was called a man after God's own heart, is it not? And did you notice that he needed revived? Brought back to life? Brought back to a place where he clearly understood who God is? Think about it. As a result of what he had done, clarity came. Conviction came. Cleansing came. Look at, look at Psalm 51. It's not in your notes. But I want to read these verses from the book of Psalms in light of what you just heard. Because this is revival right here. This is revival. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. Notice the word recognize. I see it now, clearly. The rain is gone. All obstacles are no longer in my way. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty. From the womb, teaching me wisdom, even there. Purify my, me from my sins, and I will be clean. Conviction brought cleansing. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. Don't, let, don't keep me looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a, renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of, my, of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. All four things you see there. Clarity, conviction, cleansing, and now what will you do? Look at the next verse. Then will I teach your, teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. That is what revival is all about right there. Where people come together like that and they recognize, we want God. Forget all this ritual stuff, all this emotional stuff. We want God to show up in his holiness, all his glory, in such a profound way that we don't have to say anything to anybody. Because it's so profoundly manifested in light of his presence. Think about it. Who are we? It's who we are in Christ. It's not who we are in we. Who we are in Christ. None of us. And that includes everyone. None of us without him has anything. We are nothing. Have nothing. 
know nothing could do nothing. Because in a heartbeat, it can all be taken away. I don't want religion. Now, listen cautiously to this again. Look at our first verse from the message translation. Our encounter with God. When you come looking for me, you will find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. This is God's decree. I'll turn things around for you. I'll bring you back from all the countries into which I drove you. God's decree. Bring you home to the place from which I sent you off into exile. You can count on it. Hallelujah. You can count on it. Hallelujah. 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 This world, whatever it offers, is short-lived. It's fading with the using. Every day, every year that goes by, you realize you're closer and closer to eternity. And anything this world has to offer is meaningless outside of Christ. The only thing you'll carry into eternity is the things that belong to God. Your life in Him, praise God. The only thing that's most important to all of us should be our families being together in eternal glory. When God ordains, He ordains. What He does, He equips, He anoints, He uh, enables people to stand in specific offices to carry out the purpose of His will, to do what He wants done. And you know what? No one should take credit for it. Not one soul should take credit for it. The only thing we should do is say, okay, here I am, Lord, send me. Like Isaiah did. What we should do is like the Apostle Paul, okay, I'm ready to go. And think about the hardships he suffered along the way. But what did he anchor his soul to? You sent me, you called me, you told me, you equipped me, you anointed me. You'll notice in the epistles he says, Paul, an apostle, not by the will of God or the will of man, but by Jesus Christ. Notice he says in Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, I am nothing. We got verses of scripture for that. I am nothing. I know nothing, have nothing, can do nothing. It's all scripture. It's all true. So you know what? We should be the most humble people upon the planet and willing. If we're willing to have his presence, then we have to be willing to repent. What do I fall short? What's my inadequacy? What, I've, what have I done to disrupt anything? And get on our faces before God and just say, all we want is you. That's all we want. Just you. Let's all stand together.